0: Our last few episodes have looked at the Civil Defence Corps, but it's just too hot today for Civil Defence. In Glasgow, it's 24 degrees. Now, I know that I have listeners from all around the world, and so from places where I'm sure 24 degrees is trifling, it's nothing. But I'm in Glasgow. We never, <laughs> we never get weather like this. This is exceptional. This is what they call in Glasgow haps off weather, i.e. tops off, everyone into the park to roast and have a drink. So we're having another 4 Minutes of Threads episode today, because it's just too hot for anything more taxing or more serious. If you're a new listener, let me tell you that this is an occasional series where we examine Threads, the greatest nuclear war film, in minute detail. This is the fifth in series, so we'll be starting at 16 minutes in. Our 16 minutes starts with Mr Sutton, the leader of Sheffield City Council, making preparations for the coming nuclear war. And yet, he's in a relatively jolly mood. At this stage, of course, there's always the hope that like the Cuba crisis, for example, this will all blow over. Perhaps the politicians will knock some heads together and sort everything out and the world will be saved from nuclear annihilation. Or maybe Sutton's just so utterly professional that he's getting the job done, no matter what worries and awful black depths his emotions may have plummeted to. Or maybe he's in denial. Although we might assume that a man able to climb the dizzying heights of Sheffield city council would be relatively sensible and hard-headed, and so wouldn't slip into psychological denial. So let's just say that Sutton hasn't given in to anxiety or dread or fear. He's chipper, and he's getting things done. In fact, he's so chipper that he's happily scoffing food whilst he makes some awful phone calls. And he even cracks a joke with his secretary about Argentina. Remember, of course, uh, Threads was made, broadcast rather, in 1984, and so the Falklands War wasn't so long ago. And so he jokes that he hopes the corned beef which we have in our food stores isn't from Argentina. So there we have Sutton, the leader of the council, joking, chewing down, seeming quite relaxed. After discussing the food stocks, he moves on to discussing the supplies for first aid posts. Now, we've looked at first aid posts, or FAPs as they were abbreviated to, in a previous episode called The Nuclear NHS. And in that episode, I described how after nuclear war, Britain's NHS would be split into three levels. It would no longer be the case that if you had a mild injury or illness, you would go to your GP, your doctor, or if you had something more serious or an emergency, you would go to the hospital. So you've got two basic options in Britain when you're ill. Something mild is for the GP, something scary is for the hospital. But after nuclear war, it splits into three different levels, three different routes. But no matter how badly injured you are, the first port of call is always going to be the FAP, the first aid post. So the idea is you drag yourself along to your local first aid post after the nuclear war and after, of course, the radiation has decreased. We know from previous episodes that there's considered to be a two-week period after the bomb drops in which no one is moving. There will be a very real lockdown then. If you go outside, you might die. So it's assumed that there will be two weeks after the bomb where we'll all have to remain undercover to allow the radiation to decrease to tolerable levels. So when the two weeks are up, the idea is you drag yourself to your local first aid post and that will be sited in a local school, a local library, a local community centre, perhaps even your GP surgery itself, if it's still standing. You drag yourself down to the FAP, which is staffed not by doctors, not by nurses, but by volunteers trained in first aid. And in Britain, that will mean volunteers from the Red Cross or the St. John's or St. Andrew's Ambulance Brigades. So when you drag yourself into the FAP, you're met by a volunteer who will give you basic medical help, of course, basic first aid. Now, he said the system had three levels, so they ideally would patch you up and send you home. Or if you're requiring a bit more attention, if you're very badly injured, you'll be forwarded on to a casualty collecting centre. And from there, I won't go into this in detail because it's all in the episode called the NHS, uh, the Nuclear NHS, but from the Casualty Collecting Centre, if you require further help, you will be sent onwards to the hospital. But you will only be sent onwards to the hospital if you have a decent chance of survival. If you're delivered to the Casualty Collecting Centre, which will have doctors on site, and if they say he's a goner, there's not much we can do at least not without using up a whole lot of staff and resources then you are tucked away into a separate area in the casualty collecting centre and you're left there to die but as I say that gruesome stuff is all in the nuclear NHS episode let's get back to threads so the first aid post which Mr Sutton is um, inquiring about he exclaims uh, when asking what supplies they have, what is that all, is that all they've got And he's quite right in saying that, because in reality, first aid posts wouldn't have had a lot of fancy equipment or lots of medicines. They don't even have doctors and nurses, as we've discussed. And I found something in the archives, again, it's in that previous nuclear Clinicist episode, which talks about the stocks and supplies for first aid posts. And it makes clear that they are seen as the well they are the bottom of the tree they're not going to get anything fancy that's going to be reserved for the upper levels of casualty collecting and hospital so your first aid post has the very basic stuff it might not even have medical equipment it might have, as this quote reveals sheets torn into bandages, splints from floorboards scrounged sterilising outfits or improvised ones and local vans to act as ambulances So there we have the equipment and the gear for the first aid post might have to be scavenged from sheets and floorboards. So their thread is very accurate when it has Mr. Sutton saying, what, that's what we've got for the first aid posts. They were going to be very basic and very bare because again, as we've discussed previously, the NHS after nuclear war didn't want to see you. The emphasis, at least in the latter cold war, was look after yourself. You should have stocked up on first aid supplies at home. You should have joined up to civil defence. You should have taken a first aid training course. You should have learned to look after yourself. Now, our next scene shows us these first aid posts or perhaps rest centres being stocked and supplied. We jump to a school playground, the school attended by Michael, Jimmy's little brother, the one who comes to a very sad end later in the film. And whilst all his pals run and play and shriek, as they do, Michael notices a van in the playground and he watches what's happening. He sees men unloading stacks of blankets from the van. So we assume, of course, that this means that his school, Hillsborough Primary, you can find it on Street View on, on Google, it's on Catch Bar Lane in Sheffield, and it still looks exactly as it did in the film, although perhaps with a nice look of paint. Uh, We can assume that this means Michael's school is going to be used then either as a first aid post or perhaps a rest centre. The blankets which are being unloaded are all mismatched, suggesting that the stockpiling of supplies has been a bit haphazard, a bit chaotic perhaps, grabbing blankets from here and from there. And as the men unload the blankets, the children run and play. This is obviously quite a disturbing moment because we see preparation for nuclear war occurring in the school playground under the very feet of children. Children who, apart from sad-eyed Michael in his parka, are oblivious to it. As we discussed plenty of times before, children and babies appear throughout threads, either alive, happy and innocent, or on tattered pictures and posters or in future generations who are stunted and filthy and silent. But in Hillsborough Primary, for now, the kids are happy and everything would seem totally normal were it not for this transit van unloading stacks and stacks of mismatched blankets. Another point worth mentioning before we leave the Hillsborough primary scene is that uh, as the van is being unloaded we see two men by the side of the van who seem to be uh, not arguing but they're in dispute about something. One man holding a clipboard we assume is a council worker who's been told get to Hillsborough primary and unload these blankets. The other man with him seems to be protesting he's pointing at the clipboard and I read that as he's perhaps a teacher or the headmaster. And maybe he's saying, what on earth is going on here? This is a school. This is a school. You're trying to take it over as a a, a what? Naturally, the headmaster might be quite aggrieved at the thought of this happening while the school is still open, whilst the kids are still there. He might also be aggrieved because maybe he's not been told that his school was going to be used in this way. And that is quite a a reasonable um, guess because a lot of the time buildings which were going to be used for this purpose as first aid posts or rest centres or even overflow hospitals, they weren't told about it. Because if a council, for example, had to drop a list of all the buildings that they will seek to use after nuclear war, providing they're still standing, it would be a huge list. I've seen in the archives, um, in the Scottish National Archives, I saw papers from Aberdeen Council where they had drawn up lists of all the hotels and restaurants and discos, which they were going to use as overflow hospitals or rest centres. Hotels, of course, are ideal because you've already got them stocked full of beds. You've also got a a canteen downstairs, i.e. the hotel restaurant. And if there's a bar or a dining room or a dance floor in the hotel, you, you can simply clear it free of all its chairs and tables. And there you have empty space, which can be filled with stretchers or blankets, for example. So they had a huge list of hundreds of hotels, uh, restaurants, nightclubs, um, schools, of course, uh, YMCA centres, art galleries, museums, colleges, which were all, as they said, earmarked for use. So someone had scouted out these locations and said, yes, for various reasons, these buildings will be of use. The council had a huge list of them, but of course they didn't go and knock on the door and say, oh by the way, I know you've got a lovely hotel here, oh this is a really nice disco you've got here, do you mind if us boys move in after nuclear war and fill it with corpses and screaming people? So no, that would have caused panic perhaps, that would have caused upset, and no doubt someone would have gone to the local newspaper and a big drama would have been created. The council didn't want that. They quietly wanted to send their civil defence staff out to scout locations, draw up lists, draw up plans, and do it all in a nice, low-key manner. So if your building, whether it's a school or nightclub, was on this list, you probably didn't know about it until the boys turned up with their van, as we see here, full of blankets. So I take that scene to be the... Innocent council worker saying, Look, mate, I've just been told to drop off blankets here. And the headmaster saying, Whoa, 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 what do you mean? What, what on earth? What are you planning to do with my school? What about the kids? In our next scene, we leave the shouting and chaos of the playground and head up onto the edge of the moors outside Sheffield. Mr. Kemp is up here, digging in his allotment, and Jimmy, his disgruntled son has driven up to see him. And yes, we know that Jimmy is disgruntled because his girlfriend is pregnant and he has found himself rather hurried into marriage and home ownership and of course fatherhood, impending fatherhood, when he'd really rather just be down the pub. So he escapes up into the fresh air to be with his dad for five minutes, maybe to get away from the woman down in the city and their talk of weddings and preparing for the baby and What colour they're painting the living room in the new flat. But yes, even up here, above the city, out in the fresh air, away from everyone else, Threads keeps sending us horrible hints of the nuclear distress about to befall our characters. Flocks of birds take flight and spiral across the sky, but the sky is later torn apart by a phantom jet from nearby RAF Finningley. Mr Kemp kneels down in the soil, digs in his allotment, planting wholesome veg in the healthy, untainted earth. Earth which will soon be, of course, sickened and tainted by radiation. Soil which will be so stricken that it will not produce juicy carrots again. Well, not for a very long time. So father and son are here to perhaps escape the woman, perhaps escape the city. They cannot escape reminders that war is brewing and those birds we keep seeing behind Jimmy we keep seeing them taking flight and swooping in the air behind Jimmy but they will soon turn blind and drop from the sky I mention the horrible idea of birds being blinded and falling from the sky because I read about that in an eyewitness report of a nuclear test, let me read it to you it's from the excellent book bracing for armageddon by d garrison and it's um, a witness giving his memory of a test out in the pacific he says and suddenly i could see all these birds i could see the birds i'd been watching for days before they were now suddenly visible through the opaque visor of my helmet and they were smoking their feathers were on fire and they were doing cartwheels, and the light persisted for some time. Several seconds, it seems like, long enough for me to see birds crash into the water. They were sizzling, smoking. They weren't vaporised. It's just that they were absorbing such intense radiation that they were being consumed by the heat. Their feathers were on fire. They were blinded. And so far, there had been no shock, none of the blast damage. Instead, there were just these smoking, twisting, hideously contorted birds crashing into things. So, birds, soil, vegetables, father and son having a chat, Jimmy planning a few drinks tonight with his pal. What could be more... Ordinary, more wholesome, more precious. And if all that imagery of birds and nature and soil and innocence hasn't got to us enough, Threads then gives us a line of dialogue which is very ominous. There'll be something going on tonight when I've had a few pints. Don't be going mad. You ain't only got yourself to think about now, you know. Why not? Might as well enjoy myself while I'm single. Not long to go now, you know. You could be right there. Yep, Mr Kemp knows the score. Even though he's been made redundant and we were invited to perhaps gently mock him in earlier scenes when we saw him running about the kitchen preparing dinner with a flowery apron on, implying that he's been maybe emasculated, lost his status as head of the household and breadwinner. He's yet the wisest one so far. Everyone else, as we discussed in previous episodes, is quite oblivious to the threat. Whenever a news report comes on, most people turn away or continue yapping. Mr. Kemp is the one who's very solemn and who seems to see exactly what's going to happen. And yet, as a man who's been knocked off his perch and deprived of his standing and his income, he's powerless to do anything about it. Now, that might be quite a heavy-handed reading of it. Um, after all, Mr. Kemp has just lost his job. It's not the end of the world. He's not dying. But, of course, this was 1980s... Sheffield in 1980s Northern England, where a lot of communities, not just Northern England of course, also in Wales, Scotland, the Midlands, had been really gutted, devastated by deindustrialization. and so it often wasn't the case of just one man losing their job; it would be a case of whole factories worth of men losing their jobs, and therefore families often losing their only source of income. And Barry Hines, the writer of Threads, was very uh, left-wing so perhaps he is trying to or was trying to show us here that when a man loses his job and his position in that environment and in that time it wasn't just a case of oh well lost the job I'll get another one next week it was a loss of a lot more than just one job we cut to RAF Finningley which we are told would likely be a base for US phantoms during any war Phantoms, of course, being those planes which just roared over the allotments. And naturally, hosting US planes will make Finningley a huge target in a nuclear war. Here we see a few general shots of Finningley, and it's obvious there's a lot of action at the base. They're getting ready for something. And we see what looks like a green goddess pulling into the base. If you listened to last week's episode, you'll know all about green goddesses. Well, this looked like one, uh, a green truck only seen from behind with a siren on the roof and a ladder on its back. But it seemed a bit too nimble and neat for a green goddess. So I set my husband to do some research, as he's an aviation geek. I asked him, would the RAF have had any kind of special compact little fire engines at their bases? And yes, it seems that he found them. This thing we see on threads, it seems to be a Land Rover, converted into a fire engine. So if we've got it right, at the front it's a basic army Land Rover, but at the back it's all bulky and kitted out with ladders, hoses and a blue siren on top. Now, I don't know the name of that particular engine, if it has a special title. Um, If you know, please do let us know. But we can assume that we're being shown this because... Fire engines pulling into RAF fittingly implies that they're anticipating attack. We also see a sign showing the UK's bikini status, which isn't as funky as it sounds. The bikini state uh, was simply a way of showing what kind of alert you were at. We were, when the scene begins, at bikini black. Black, according to the Wikipedia page, means... There has been an assessment made that there is the possibility of an attack, but no defined target. We see that the black bikini state is changed to amber. Amber meaning there has been specific information received, and there is a substantial threat to government targets. It can also mean high alert, which could be a transition to war. And in the last scene of our four-minute section, we're back in Jimmy's local, the Nottingham House pub in Sheffield. Again, it's still there. You can find it on Street View if you like. Jimmy's on his night out with Bob, his pal. And although Jimmy is hardly bursting with joy at the prospect of settling down with Ruth, he is at least trying to be good, telling Bob that no, he'll only be drinking halves. And being dismissive when Bob spots two good-looking girls at the bar. Well, I say Jimmy tries to be good, but he doesn't try very hard. Also, perhaps we give him too much credit. Maybe Jimmy isn't initially interested in the girls because he's watching the news. That's right, our characters have finally started paying attention when the news comes on. The latest report tells us that Soviet Antonov transport planes have landed in Iran where they were immediately placed under cover in temporary hangars. Meanwhile, the US has accused the Soviets of moving nukes into a base in Mashhad in Iran. This news report gets the attention of all the drinkers in the pub. But the old landlord behind the bar doesn't realise. He, he hasn't realised that his drinkers are now paying attention to this kind of thing. So he reaches up to the TV and switches over. And when he changes the channel, we see a quick glimpse of the classic British film Kind Hearts and Coronets, a film that I recommend. In fact, I only discovered, I think, a few months ago. I absolutely loved it. watched it twice as soon as I found it. So we get a quick glimpse of Kind Hearts and Coronets, which also offers a quick glimpse into an old-fashioned Britain. Of course, the film Kind Hearts and Coronets is about... <laughs> destroying the aristocracy. It's about a chap who is in line to a dukedom but he because of various mishaps he gets bumped down the line of succession until he's very far down and he will only inherit the dukedom and all the wealth if lots and lots of people ahead of him die. So he of course bumps them off. So our little working class lad kills all these posh enticed members of the aristocracy. So it's a film which our left wing Barry Hines might have liked. It's a film about how rotten and miserable the aristocracy are because we can't help cheering on... I can't remember the character's name, but the guy. We can't help cheering him on even as he murders all the people ahead of him in the line of succession. So maybe Barry Hines wanted a quick glimpse of Kent Arts and Coronets for that reason. Maybe not, because we only see a tiny glimpse of it and in that glimpse we see an old-fashioned and gallant Britain with their Edwardian characters in their nice fancy togs waltzing across the dance floor. So perhaps we're only meant to see a glimpse of old, refined, elegant Britain as a reminder of what we have lost and are about to lose even more of. So he switches on to Cain Tarts and Coronets, but the pub all start going, hey, put that back on. So he switches to the news back on. And even though Jimmy is finally paying attention, like everyone else in the pub, finally paying attention to the news, and he's trying very hard to follow it, his... Little face is all frowny and concentrating. He's obviously not quite a bright spark because when Bob comes back to the table with her drinks Jimmy starts talking about the trouble in the Far East and Bob laughs and tells him it's the Middle East, Iran's the Middle East, not the Far East. So yeah, Jimmy perhaps not that bright and perhaps not that determined and loyal to Ruth either because Bob soon has him with his full pints going across to meet the girls at the bar. And there we end our four minutes of threads. Let me thank my newest patron, Ed Carter. Thanks for joining Ed and for supporting my podcast. I'm also giving a shout-out this week to the following patrons. Many thanks to Dan Breen, Simon Robinson, Lissy Dee, Eric, Tamsin Cater, Harry Andrews, Chris Carini, Louis, Sally Everett Brick, Tom Allen, Paul Jonathan Viner, Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Gary Watson, Arika and Lucy Stegerwald. Remember if you want to join my Patreon and support the podcast with a donation each month please go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo It's because of Patreon that this podcast will never be plagued with horrible, intrusive adverts. I earn an income through Patreon so I don't need to resort to advertising thank goodness. You get lots of different nuclear rewards, uh, one of which is access to some of my archives I share some of my archives on a private Facebook page and this week I added a trans- a partial transcript of a BBC script from 1962 about the hydrogen bomb and what the implications are for Britain. Of course, at this stage, we were still grappling with what the hydrogen bomb meant, what it meant for our plans to fight and survive a nuclear war and how hopeless it would have been. But do please look at my Patreon page and there are lots of different levels, lots of different rewards attached to each level and you can choose whichever one you please. Of course, thanks to everyone who listens and everyone who's left me a review. Although they say the best review is one that goes by word of mouth. So if you do like this podcast, please tell your friends. Particularly if you have any Cold War geeks out there who might like this one. So we had a short break this week from Civil Defence. I have been doing a string of Civil Defence Core podcast episodes because that's the chapter in writing currently for my book. But I'm nearing the end of that chapter now. The next one I go on to write and fiddle with, and then delete, and then rewrite, and then edit, and then change, and then sleep over, and then panic about, (laughs) is uh, the BBC. uh, This is a very uh, juicy chapter, I like this one. It's about the BBC, firstly, the BBC's role in uh, educating the public, or informing the public about nuclear war and the nuclear threat, and how they would have communicated the four-minute warning to us. Um, If you like that topic, I previously covered it in a podcast called The Last Word. Uh, So if you scroll back through the archive, you'll find that one there. But the BBC chapter will also cover things like threads, things like the war game. So how they communicated the nuclear threat to us through films and documentaries. Listeners to this podcast will know one of the best documentaries, well, there are two excellent BBC documentaries about nuclear war, both of which, thankfully, are on YouTube. And that is uh, Panorama, If the Bomb Drops and a QED episode called A Guide to Armageddon and A Guide to Armageddon was made a few years before Threads and was directed by the same guy Mick Jackson so do please look them up on YouTube if you want to if it's perhaps a bit too lovely and sunny outside and you want to bring your mood right down you can do that through those uh, excellent documentaries so thank you everyone for listening And I'll be back next Sunday with another podcast.